Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. You're listening to God Gave Me You, recorded by Blake Shelton and written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Dave Barnes. I've been a walking heartache. I've made a mess of me. Nashville-based singer, songwriter, musician, podcaster, and comedian Dave Barnes began his professional life as an indie touring musician in the early 2000s. After a couple of critically acclaimed albums, he signed with Razor and Tie Records and released his third full-length studio effort, Me and You and the World. The follow-up album, What We Want, What We Get, included the single God Gave Me You, which became a top-five contemporary Christian hit for Dave and was subsequently recorded by Blake Shelton. The cover version became a number-one hit on country radio, went five times platinum, and earned Dave a Grammy nomination for Best Country Song and a CMA nomination for Song of the Year. He found additional success writing with and for other country artists, including Thomas Rhett and Maren Morris's number one duet, Craving You, Carrie Underwood's Kingdom, and Like a Lady, a top 20 single by Lady A. The list of artists who have recorded his songs also includes Reba McIntyre, Tim McGraw, and Christian artist Bethany Dillon, who scored a top five hit with All I Need. Drawn to thematic projects, Dave has released two Christmas albums, two Valentine's Day LPs, and an album paying tribute to the sounds of 70s Southern California called Carry On San Vicente. To date, he has released over a dozen full-length studio albums. The most recent, Featherbrained Wealth Motel, came after a year Dave spent listening solely to the Beatles. Part 1 so, Scott, today we are talking to Dave Barnes, and we're talking about his new album, Featherbrain Wealth Motel, which, as people will hear in the which, interview... Which, by the way, I was totally going to call my next album that. What are the chances? Yeah, I know. I know. And I was, gonna, I was you know, it, it's awkward. It's going to be an awkward conversation. Uh, you might be able to put yours out with Hotel. I mean, um, first of all, I was going to make an album called Chinese Democracy. That got taken from me. I know. And now this. I mean, what's the chance? This has been quite a saga for you, and I've, I've walked next to you through the whole thing, but um, I can't believe it happened again. I know. It's nuts. So, as I was saying, before you had to make it all about you, um, <laughs> Dave listened to nothing but the Beatles for the entirety of 2022, right. and then came out and made this album, which is Beatlesque. Um, there's a, a very distinct... Uh, Beatles thread to the construction and the composition of these songs and the way the album is put together. Um, and I, I think we may have used the phrase concept album uh, in the interview. I'm not sure that Dave actually calls it that. Right. Um, but he is a guy that's that's done this before in the sense that he made that um, Carry On San Vicente record, which is very much kind of a love letter to uh, the California sounds of the 70s. And then he's made these albums that are Valentine's Day albums. And I would say that, that Dave Barnes knows his way around a concept album. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like he really likes the idea of sinking his teeth into a cohesive idea that's going to guide the project, which I think is a, a very interesting way to write. I mean, it's it, it, it seems kind of daunting, uh, but also like a nice guide at the same time for a songwriter. Yeah, and I think it might be kind of a lost art. Um, you know, you don't hear artists doing concept albums as much. Well, a lot of artists aren't doing albums at all. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, it's maybe it's because it's daunting. Maybe it's because it seems like a lot to, to, to bite off, uh, particularly when you're you know, maybe using a band like the Beatles as a reference. Uh, Dave does it really, really well. Um, I have to recommend everybody listen to this record and listen to that Carry On San Vicente record. I haven't been able to stop listening to it. Yeah, it's great. Um, 
but it got me thinking about some of the great concept albums that that we grew up on it, that that made it seem like this is something to shoot for. I, I remember listening to Tommy from The Who and thinking like, oh, that's that's a great way to write a record. You're you're telling an entire story, um, not just in a song, but from song to song. And of course, Pete Townsend was doing more than just writing an album. Um, th- these were rock operas. They were, you know, meant, you know, there's a movie. It's They're, they're meant for bigger things. Um, but it's, uh, I think it's part of our, our formative upbringing, these concept albums. Well, and you think about, you know, I, I don't know what's considered the first concept album. I know like, you know, Sinatra was kind of doing conceptual albums. Um, you know, if you kind of think about the, the wee small hours, isn't that a, yeah, yeah. Isn't that a, yeah. Yeah. Come fly with me. Like he was doing records that were, um, you know, thematic, uh, in the, in the pre rock and roll era. Um, I don't know, you know, how far it goes back before that in terms of what people consider the first, um, you know, concept record, but obviously the Beatles, Sergeant Pepper was hugely influential in that you sort of create this idea of another band. And, you know, it has this thread that goes through the beginning of, you know, we are Sergeant Pepper's only hearts club band. They're, they're almost performing as characters. All the songs are connected. It was put together as with the idea of this being a concept album. So in a way, um, by making what he may or may not refer to as a, as a concept album, Dave was soaking up the Beatles to the point that he even did the most Beatles thing, which is make a concept album. So it's like, it's, it's double concept. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, you know, I think some of them have kind of maybe flown under the radar, uh, it, like an album like Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy by Elton John. And it's hard to say that anything Elton John did flew under the radar because Elton is Elton John. <laughs> right. But, you know, that's an album that's it's autobiographical. And it's about um, Elton and Bernie Taupin and their career together, their friendship. Um, you know, songs came out of it like Someone Saved My Life Tonight, which was a huge radio hit. Um, so it's not like it's an album that was devoid of singles. Um, but for anyone that, that doesn't know Elton's catalog, you know, beyond the greatest hits, I would direct them. I actually think that may be where he was at his singing and writing peak. Um, it's just an incredible album and, uh, but it, it tells a story. Yeah. Yeah. And not to go backwards, but being a, um, you know, California country music historian, a lot of people forget, um, about somebody like Woody Guthrie who started in California. Um, that's not really the, where he's most associated with, but it is where he began. And he did a whole record of like dust bowl ballads back in the, in the forties. So this whole like concept thing definitely predates, uh, the, the rock and roll era, but it was really the rock and roll era that like took the idea of not just a theme, but like a high concept, a, a, an artistic concept. And I think that's kind of when like rock and roll, which was more just kind of like about dancing and having fun, even though that was art. I mean, Chuck Berry, some of those Chuck Berry records are to me, absolute art, but it, it elevated the art in a way where the album itself is a piece of art. It has a concept. It has a visual concept that ties into that. Um, and, and, you know, I think pet sounds and, um, you know, records like that really like ushered in this era of the idea of putting together a concept album and it not seeming like, you know, totally pretentious. Like it's, it's a true piece of art. Well, it's interesting that you say that. And it's interesting that you bring up Woody Guthrie, because I think we tend to think of the concept album as something that's just high art and that a band like Queen, Night of the Opera is a concept album or, 
or that Pete Townsend is going to do Quadrophenia, and that's a concept album, and it's this, it's this big lofty type of thing. And we don't think of our blue-collar artists as being concept album artists, but in a, Bruce Springsteen is a concept album artist in a way. Yeah. Um, you could call Nebraska a concept album. Yeah. yeah certainly Western Stars, uh, this album he just put out a couple of years ago, is a concept album. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't call... Uh, Bruce like a, a snooty artist type. Right, right. And and yet he's a concept album artist. Yeah, for sure. I, I think of an album that I know had to have been part of your childhood because I know your dad was a huge fan, but uh Marty Robbins Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs in from the late fifties or early sixties. Oh, yeah. I mean that was a, a concept album, but again, it's not snooty or, or pretentious. It's just conceptual. Yeah. And it's um it, it's something that I actually wish more artists would take advantage of nowadays because the album concept is sort of I don't want to call it a dying art um, but it's not something that everyone is doing a lot of artists are just putting out singles and to me it's like well okay if you're going to put out an album let's let's make there be a reason that there's an album um, let's let's have something that's going to draw me in and make me want to listen to song one through song 12 and make everyone want to listen to song one through song 12 or 13 or however many it happens to be yeah and I think it's it's kind of a worthy challenge to put in front of an artist to say, can you give me a complete thought? Can you give me a complete idea that, that makes this album really matter? Right. Um, I, I think that would go a long way in today's short attention span uh, culture to maybe widening the attention span again and saying the album matters. There's a reason for doing an album. Yeah. 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 I think of a record like, um, Marvin Gaye's what's going on, which, you know, I think it's debatable about whether or not that's truly a, a concept album, but it was a conscious set of songs and, and Marvin Gaye was writing songs about, um, social issues. He was writing songs about, um, injustice that he saw and he was making social commentary where he had not done so before. And in fact, Motown records was very resistant to that. They wanted to keep, you know, their artists making music that wasn't controversial. That was just sort of fun pop radio hits. And he sat down and wrote an entire album of songs about things that mattered to him. And he fought hard uh, to get that album made. And I remember um, Smokey Robinson, I can't remember if this is in the interview that we did with Smokey or if he just said it and it wasn't within the interview context, but he talked about Marvin Gaye felt like he was just sitting down at the piano and that God was giving him these songs that he wasn't, he was just like a conduit and he was channeling them. Wow. And so, you know, that's not a sort of thing where he sat down and like created a character or a story but he had a concept that ran through the whole thing and, and tied it all together. So whether or not that's a concept album in the way that, say, Willie Nelson's Redheaded Stranger is a concept album where you have characters and a narrative thread and each song leads to the next, you know, that's a different it's a different type of concept. But to me, they're both they're both right. concept albums. Yeah, I, I would say what's going on is kind of Marvin Gaye's Chris Gaines, you know, like. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I, I have. I actually have nowhere to go with that. But it, uh, you know, it, and and I guess it, it raises a question: Do you have to intend to make a concept album to make a concept album? Huh. Because right. I'm not sure that Marvin Gaye set out saying I'm going to make this type of piece of art, uh, rather than just say these are the songs that are on my, you know, on my mind and on my heart that I want to put out. And you know, if if you like it. So be it. Yeah. And if you don't, I mean, I think he just kind of made a fearless album 
um, that he he couldn't escape what was going on in the world around him. Yeah, and so he made an album that was a narrative of his thought process and his and his response to it, and and I think that's what makes it such an arresting album, such a lasting album, is because not only is it this great cohesive piece of art, but it's incredibly honest. What do you think if you? I mean, setting aside Sergeant Pepper. Uh, do you think there's kind of a, a quintessential concept album or, or maybe not even, I mean, objectively quintessential is impossible to say, but maybe something that for you, you feel like this is the concept album. Like it's this, it's the gold standard from, from your opinion. Um, I, I think it, for me, it has to come back to one of those who records. I mean, even, even who's next was from this Lifehouse project that was intended to be uh, more of a rock opera thing. So, I mean, Tommy, Quadrophenia and Who's Next are all, you know, arising from some sort of concept. But by the way, I'm a huge Pink Floyd fan too, so it's hard for me to ignore the wall. Right. But um, I, I think you know maybe I would say Who's Next because Who's Next is one of my favorite albums of all time, and I don't approach it like a concept album at all. In fact, I think I had, I think I was in love with the album before I even knew that it was intended to be this Lifehouse project. But um, yeah, is it the quintessential? You know. Quadrophenia might be more uh, representative of the art form, right? In terms of how it plays out, um, but I, I would I would say something in that who camp. Uh, uh, yourself, what would you say? Um, I think for me, I already mentioned it, but I would say Willie Nelson's "Redheaded Stranger" um, is probably my favorite uh, concept album. It's super stripped down. You know, it's not what people think of when they think concept album i think people think more uh you know david bowie ziggy stardust they think like big you know um but for me that's that's a favorite sure. I, I love the kinks uh village green preservation society which um is a, a concept album i think strictly speaking um but uh yeah you know what's funny about you mentioned the wall and i think for a lot of people pink floyd's the wall would be the the quintessential concept record um and it's funny because i have i'm going to confess something here that might shock people i have never heard the wall uh, beginning to end. I've never heard the the entire album. My wife, however, uh, loves this album. Yeah. And if she and I are on a road trip, um, she knows that I'm not that interested in in listening to it. So if I if she drives and I fall asleep, she puts on the wall, and I feel like I kind of wake up, uh, just kind of doze, and you know your head kind of nods down, and you and you snap to. Uh, uh, every time I sort of wake up and she's listening to the wall on, on a road trip, I just hear this guitar like that goes, yeah. and I'm like, is that the whole album? Because it seems like it. Yeah, that's a that's a thematic construct that that sticks around for quite a bit of that album. Have you ever woken up with like no eyebrows while listening to it? Because I don't know if anyone's seen the movie, but um, yeah. Uh, I have not. I don't know if that's an album you want to listen to asleep. I'm not sure that you want your subconscious to be what's dealing with the wall. I I would rather... I would rather walk into that with my my conscious self intact, but um, yeah. if you're comfortable with whatever that's going to be doing to your psyche by entering your subconscious, then by all means, sleep away. Well, I I am uh, certainly somewhat disturbed, and maybe we found the source of it, and maybe I could save a lot of money on therapy uh, by just not listening to the wall while sleeping, and um, that'll <laughs> that'll fix me. Or just wake up and put on uh, Featherbrained Wealth Motel, and that could solve everything. Exactly. Then I'll be just like so drowning in Beatles ideas. Be like, oh, where did that come from? Exactly. And then I can write a concept album. And my concept is I'm trying to write an album like Dave Barnes's album of Beatles inspired songs. And then that'll be like so high concept. Wow. 
concept album indeed i think we finally nailed it um so but uh listeners let us know your favorite concept albums uh are there some that we missed i'm sure there are some that we've missed um because there are more than dozens of albums out there um but uh yeah let us know send us an email uh you can text scott i think you all have his number just let us know what you think <laughs> uh send me a send me like a talk to text that i can listen to while i'm sleeping and listening to the wall um no you can uh you can you can hit us up on Instagram Songcraft Conversations or you can email us Songcraft Show at Gmail. We really would be interested to hear uh, what you guys think about this topic. Um, and in the meantime, let's uh, have this great conversation with Dave Barnes, who, by the way, such a nice guy. Oh yeah, such a nice guy. So knowledgeable. It was so great talking about music, talking about his music. I, I felt like we also could have spent another hour talking about things that we're just fans of. Um, but uh, we'll let you guys be the judge of of the conversation. We hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Part two. Dave, welcome to Songcraft. Yes, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks so much. We always love to find out where um, our artists draw their inspiration, where they, um, you know, kind of first fell in love with music, first realized this was something that that they wanted to do. And I, I'm sure we're going to get there. Um, but I want to hit the fast forward all the way to modern day because you have a new record out. And I understand that this record came on the heels of you spending an entire year absolutely absorbed in the Beatles. So I want to hear all about this. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I, I think this is my 13th or 14th full length record. And so you guys probably know this um, one, just yourselves, but I think too talking to all the amazing people you have, like it's tricky that many records in, you know what I mean? Like you kind of look up and you're like, boy, I have written a lot of songs about a lot of things and a lot of keys. And so it's, it, it can get a little tricky going what one, what is there left to say? But two, I think, especially when you still want to say things, you know, mm. it's it's one thing if you're like, I think I'm good, but it's another if you really enjoy the process kind of going like, man, I've used a lot of these colors a lot. And so one thing that I've intermittently done, I have another record called Carry On San Vicente that's kind of my take on Laurel Canyon in the 70s. And I did it five or six years ago and it was kind of the same process, like not quite as dedicated as the Beatles process was, but, you know, just, and, and I know that music a lot more intimately, you know, Eagles and Jackson Brown and that stuff. Um, so I kind of wrote that record and my fans really loved it because it was just this nice little like ginger, you know, you just kind of got a little musical ginger to sort of, oh, this is interesting. And we've never heard him like this. And it was fun for me to write because, you know, it, it's it's kind of fun writing for assignment too sometimes because, you know, mm. you just get so used to just writing. It's fun to kind of that's why I love I, I write a lot of Christmas music. I love Christmas because it's such a fixed target. You know, it's not like what well, can be anything. It's like, no, no, it either works or it does not work. So um my wife in the uh, Christmas of 2021 gave me the Paul McCartney lyrics books, you know, the double. Um, and so I, I was just kind of reading through them. And I know the Beatles pretty well at that time, uh, but not like, you know, I kind of knew because I'm a human with a face that's lived in the last 45 years. I knew <laughs> kind of the songs everybody does, um, but didn't really know much of the, of the deep stuff. And um so I was back in my studio here um, cleaning uh, like July 1st. I think I was like, I'm just going to go back and like clean the studio up. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to listen to some Beatles. Like it'll give me a little more context. These songs I don't know that he's talking about. And so I kind of looked up and I was like three or four records. in. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to listen to the whole catalog. And so over a couple of days, I'd listen to the whole thing. And I kept finding myself like grabbing my guitar going like, what the heck? Because mm. I thought I knew it. You know what I mean? But now 
you know, with 25 year old music ears, quote, you know, I kind of was, you know, you're listening differently. You're like, that's not the same key. And that's not the same rhythm. Like what? So I, I was like, you know what? So I got online, ordered a chord book. And then that sort of like, that was, it was over at that point. Cause then, you know, you're picking up and you're really learning what they're doing. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do nothing but listen to the Beatles this whole year, which is a lot for me. Cause I love music. Like I, I, I listen to a lot of music and I was like, I just feel like this would be good. And so, you know, driving my kids to school or running or sitting back here, checking emails. Like all I did was just, I was just consuming Beatles and a lot of McCartney's post Beatles stuff too, but mainly just the Beatles. Um, and I found myself going, man, I kind of want to try to write like this, you know? And and so then it was about like what I felt like that was, it was me mm-hmm. going, what do I think make the Beatles, the Beatles? And I sort of had this running list of things. And then I just sort of like pushed off into the sea and, and started to write with these things in mind. And, you know, like a couple of things were like one was scene changes. Like I was like, every song has to have a scene change. Mm-hmm. That was the, one of my dear friends, a guy named Dustin Ransom, who's a prodigy instrument guy. And he's insane here. Naturally he's in my band plays my records, but he's a big Beatles guy. And he was like, if there's nothing else you take away, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Just watch the scene changes, you know, you think about um, good day. Sunshine to me is a great example of that, but happiness is a warm gun. I mean, just yeah. these monolithic movements where it's like, this is the song. Now this is the song. Now this is the song. And it's all been in two minutes, you know, time. And so that was a big one. Like key changes. I, I read where of a hundred and I think 88 songs that they've recorded as the Beatles, 155 of them leave tonal center. And so hmm. key change was a big one. It was like, wow. um, and then, you know, just kind of like having fun, not overthinking about it was a big one. Like letting lyrics be what they are without having to, you know, um, and so before I knew it, it's just like I couldn't stop writing and, and and I kept being inspired. It's a weird catalog to me because um, I, I I still I go back to it and I'm still like, oh, my gosh, this is the 10th time I've heard this song. But I feel like I'm hearing something new this time or I'm taking something different away from it, which is really unique for a catalog of any band, you know, just to feel like you can kind of keep going back and it somehow gives you new material or whatever. So um and yeah, and so I looked up and before I knew it, I was like, man, I've got like way more songs that I needed. And so then, as you guys can understand, it was about what is this record going to be? Is it going to be mm-hmm. like the White Album? Is it going to be like Abbey Road? Is it going to be like Sgt. Pepper? Is it going to be like Rubber Soul? Because I was really listening mainly to Rubber Soul, you know, and on Magical Mystery Tour or whatever. And it sort of landed where it is now. But but I think I'm going to end up doing another set. I kind of want to try for the White Album where I just do 30 songs and just <laughs> go wow. and see how it goes. Because it really does. I feel like there's still that much gas in that tank and probably even more, honestly, um, because it's so diverse and so unique and so all over the place. And there's no two things that are the same. So, you you, you know, so I feel like a lot of records, even the best record, you kind of go, yeah, that's kind of the vibe. That's the thing. You know, it's like Joshua Tree. Cool. Got it. You know, yeah. it's awesome. Or whatever. Rush of Blood to the Head. All right. Cool. Got it. There are albums you're like three songs. You're like, wait, what? I'm sorry. Try it. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. Let's OK. Let's start at the top and then we'll do it again. You know. Um, and so it's, it's fun because it just kind of feels like it's a never ending for now, at least fount of inspiration, you know? Well, it, it, what's great about it and, and similar, you know, you mentioned the, the San Vicente record and, and all these albums, your identity as an artist comes through. I mean, a, a song like remember when you wanted everything you've got right now, that's such a Dave Barnes song in, in a Beatles vehicle. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah.
and and it's interesting i was i found myself listening through and being like okay where do i hear Lennon? where do i hear mccartney you know i, I hear i hear a little more Lennon in that song mm-hmm. um and then a song like years long feels mm-hmm. so mccartney to me mm-hmm. um the piano changes things that I think, you know, nowadays when, when I think artists are, are trying to do things that are innovative and interesting and different, one of the areas I feel like where we slip up is when we're always just following a chord progression. And it's mm. like, these are the chords. Yeah. Now, what kind of melody can I put to this? Yeah. This sounds to me like a song where you followed melody and mm. you, you knew where you wanted to go melodically and then said, okay, what chords will take me where I want to go melodically? Yeah. Am, am I missing that or, or am I right about no, that? I, th- I think that's really fair. W- one interview that I heard with Paul that just rocked, it rocked my world. And I wish I could remember what song they were talking about, but he said that exact thing. He's like, because the guy's like, why do you have so many chords in the song? And he's like, well, that's where the melody was. And I was like, oh my God. Right. <laughs> We've been getting so- it backwards this whole time. <laughs> it's uh, literally what like, you laugh, but literally Paul, like that, that is how I sort of, one of the most terrifying things about this process was squaring up with that truth in myself of going mm. like, wow, I have such a definitive way that I write songs for myself sometimes. And this yeah. was this beautiful thing of going like, no, no, man, like, like kick it wide open and, and see, you know, and, and they're such great um, teachers because you learn what chords they do go and where. And so you yeah. suddenly go, like, oh, you can go there. Like, you know, my favorite thing I showed, I wrote with some guys today and I was showing them Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. But the fact that he goes from A to F doesn't make any sense in the whole stinking world. <laughs> None of it makes sense. And those are the first two chords he plays in that song. And you're like, well, why are you doing that? And he's like, well, listen to Melody. And you're like, ah, oh, too yeah. shame, my man. Too shame. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so yeah. like, it just really messes with your professional songwriting brain because it's yeah. like, and not even me, me writing further. I mean, even just my music. I'm like, it just, it's like they go, hey, remember the ten colors you're used to? Here's like a thousand. Right. And I think, especially to your point, when you're thinking melodically, it just opens it up because you're suddenly not stuck to the key you're in, you know. And I think, exactly. I think with that song too. I really wanted the, I needed the chorus to go somewhere, and it kind of felt like where it was. I was like, there's not much I can go, and I was like, well, here we go. Let's just go where the melody needs to go, which is higher, and then off we go. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um. The Beatles advanced so rapidly and, you know, those early records where they're covering Motown or Chuck Berry or Carl Perkins or or whatever. I mean, they're doing that masterfully and they're writing their own songs that are melodically rich and they are are pushing what rock and roll music was for that time. But by the time you get to like Beatles for Sale and songs like no reply and I'm a loser. Like that's where they're sort of becoming really, I think the Beatles that we think of when we say things like a melody is Beatlesque, you know, that's where it starts to flower. And obviously rubber soul revolver. I mean, to me, that's the the pinnacle of the Beatles. Um, But it's wild to me how quickly they progressed as a band and how much they accomplished in 
a short period of time. And it's almost like they were maybe pushing each other. There was competition mm. They, you know, but the degree to which they were developing, it's like they took everything with them into the next phase. They'd never abandoned, you know, being the Beatles, but no album sounded exactly mm -hmm. like the previous album. And I'm curious, having immersed yourself in that, like mm -hmm. having like completely just drowned yourself in nothing but Beatles music for a year, what are some of the ways that, that just being absorbed by that music has maybe changed some of your instincts or, or change some things about your approach to songwriting that now that, you know, like you said, you might want to do like a white album version where you do a ton of songs, but, but forget that, like moving forward where you're not saying like, okay, I'm now intentionally writing kind of out of that kind of Beatles inspiration. What do you think you have picked up that you will take with you going forward um, yeah. as a result of that experiment? That's a g wonderful question. Thanks for asking that. I think, um, I think a few things. I think one, it, it really does feel, I mean, I, this sounds so dramatic and I sound like I should be on high fidelity. You know what I mean? Like this is so <laughs> like the guy in the record store is like, you don't understand. You know? <laughs> but it really does feel like there was like, pre-Beatles me and post-Beatles me. And I think anybody that's listening likes my music, they're probably like, oh gosh, what are we about <laughs> to, you know, I like your music, what are you doing? But I think more, you know, really exactly to your question, Scott, it feels like, it's like, okay, you you can just do more than you think you can. Like you can have a lot more fun with it. You can have more chords. Um, that's one. So it's like, you know, th there's a story I remember hearing Paul talk about with John, how John was just like bored so quickly. You know, like they'd be writing something and he'd be like, I'm bored. And it would be like, well, okay, I guess we got to change it. And I think mm. kind of watching myself for like, am I getting bored? Am I in this? And you know, it'd be the second verse. It's like, mm. you should be bored at the bridge, not the second verse, but he'd be like, I'm bored. And like, well, then let's just change it up, you know, and let's write a new verse and another key or whatever, or just change the whole vibe. I think for me, it's like being a little more attentive to myself and what I'm feeling and giving myself license to go like, I don't like this anymore, but I love it until now. Mm. And it's like, well, cool. What do you want to do with it? I think that's something, I think a, a really big thing, and this is, man, this is the magic to me. I mean, this is a bold thing to say as one definitive statement, but I think so much of the magic of the Beatles is that me and my seven-year-old can listen to them, equally enjoy it. And yet, when you take that thing and dissect it, it is so unbelievably dense and well-built. It's, it, it, it's, it's like got two more chords than you think it does. It's got you know, there's just more going on, but but mm. it still can be presented in this insanely soluble package. Huh. And that to me is something that I think I will always now aspire to. It's kind of like I did this thing with my kids. It was so fun. So I would play them Beatles songs on the way to school and then I'd turn the radio off and just we'd be quiet for a little while because I wanted to hear what they would sing. Because like, mm. you know, even songs like Strawberry Fields, which is a really weird song. It's a yeah. That's a weird, weird song. I'd still, I'd hear my... 11 year old strawberry fields forever. Come mm -hmm. like, man. Like, <laughs> you know, like, and then I would, so I would do, I'd, I'd make my demos and I would do the same thing. So, like, three days later, we'd be driving and be like, hey, can I play something new? Cause there's, they're, they're such a fun age cause they love that stuff. I'm like, play a new song. So I'd play it and then I'd turn off the radio and then it'd be dead quiet. And I was like, damn, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so, this, you know, there's like a marker set for like, the Beatles, you know, I think that's the thing that is so profound to me about, again, about what they do is this ability to make these really bizarre, artistic, beautiful, cool things, unbelievably digestible. Mm. You know, that they were never, 
like Dream Theater or even Steely Dan on a bad day where it's like it's kind of art for art's sake, but it's really cool and technical. It was like, no, no, it was technical, but always with the intent purpose of you enjoying it, of like as many people can approach it as they can. Yeah. And so I think for me, that's that's really that was one of the biggest markers I felt like I probably learned in this process and I'm still learning and will never really master is like, okay, Dave, that's really cool. Can you make it more memorable and singable while still maintaining its identity and your mm-hmm. identity in it? And mm-hmm. that's a fun and really challenging thing, you know. Uh, I'm just going to make this comment and then we'll move on because we're here to talk about uh, you, <laughs> not the Beatles. But uh, I, I was in Liverpool this summer with my wife, who is a psychotherapist, and we went to John Lennon's boyhood home oh, and man. they have his report cards like under glass on a desk from when he was in elementary school. And my wife is reading all the things that the teachers wrote saying things like John is exceptionally bright, but he's restless and won't pay attention. And he was like always considered kind of this problematic, like a discipline problem. And my, my wife looks at me, she goes, Oh, he had ADD. Like there's (laughs) no question. I'm reading this is like, it's a textbook. He had ADD. And it's fascinating that you said that thing about he would get, bored so easily oh yeah uh because i don't think people really knew what add was at the time uh but that's that's uh fascinating so anyway i well, just I'll, wanted I'll say, to I'll throw say that this in too, really quickly to your point i i, I mean he, here's one of the hottest takes that i took away from with john especially like i think when you think about uh paul's lineage and his legacy um it's unbelievable i mean and and i love wings i love he doesn't go wrong much for me now i'm a little biased but 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 I think at the same time, you kind of know it like you see it in ELO, you see it in so many bands that, you know, kind of take even you can imagine them doing, you know, when they were writing for that thing you do. Somebody was like, oh, we need like a Beatles song. And they're really thinking of Paul, probably, because he's the yeah. he's the most digestible of the two, I think. Um, And so you see his marks every century. You'll see some band that kind of has something they're like, oh, they're doing like a McCartney thing. Right. Lennon, to me, is the. That said, and I probably lean a little more toward Paul than I do John, but I think John has got the most um, unduplicated legacy, maybe of any musician of all time, in Mm. that you don't, I mean, I would argue you probably see it a little bit in like the grunge, you see it a little bit in Nirvana, you see it in like Radiohead and Soundgarden, that sort of like trying to make really interesting, approachable melodies from really weird chords. But but I think of the two of them, he to me is the hardest to duplicate. And and that season, I mean, when he gets out of the Beatles, those records get a little I think they get a little samey and bland. But uh Well those those Beatles, bands those bands that you're talking about, you know, with Nirvana and Radiohead, they're they're sort of trying to approximate a spirit more than a sound. Yeah, well said. Well the, said. the minute that you approximate the sound, you've you've kind of stopped approximating the spirit because well the whole idea is to do something, you know. Yeah. Um yeah, and and to to Scott's point, I don't think I've ever tried to stop talking about the Beatles. <laughs> well, um, I know when you said that, Scott, it was a good luck. But I, but I will say, <laughs> I, I bring that up because I think you can see John's attention deficit in such a beautiful way. Hmm. In that, where I think Paul is so much more dedicated, he's like, let's really milk this thing for melody and chords and everything's got to make a little sense. You can feel in John's, he's like, no, it doesn't. Like, I, yeah, I'm already over here. Now I'm over here. I mean, happiness is a warm gun to me. Is kind of the archetype. It's like. 
where in the heck are we yeah. going? Mother I'm Superior jumped the gun. I love like this we... ride, but what is happening right now? You know, and he he to me, I would argue more than Paul had a way of milking melody out of things and not just melodies, but like unbelievable melodies, you know, out of the weirdest chord sequences that I think only come from that kind of brain that's just so fast and moving and doesn't want to sit. It just wants to go right. because, you know, I think, I think if you're any more um, methodical or patient, I don't know that you write those songs. You know what I mean? I think it's comes from so much fast twitch. You know, it's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. It, uh, now the last thing I'll say about the Beatles, everybody's got a last thing they're going to say. About the, <laughs> um, but there was that great McCartney three, two, one special that he did with Rick Rubin on Hulu. Mm. And where he said, he said, you know, we weren't trying to write memorable songs we didn't have any way to record them in the beginning. We just oh, had to dude. write songs we could remember. That's right. And and yes. again, you, you put that together with, with a possible attention deficit and all those type of things. You have to write a song that you can remember the next morning. You're sitting eyeball to eyeball, like they'd say in the hotel room, writing it together, and you wake up the next morning. Does anybody remember that melody? You yeah. Know? And you better write a pretty good melody. Can you melody. imagine? Can you, you know? imagine that? Like yeah. the weight, I mean, that was everybody <laughs> back then, but just the weight of that, it just crushes me. I'm like, yeah. you know, I'll be in co-writes now. And, and I mean, you'll hear somebody go, what was that melody? And, and now I'm just like, oh man, Paul McCartney is so sad right now. <laughs> <laughs> we wrote this 10 minutes ago. We came <laughs> um, well, you had a formative life of your own, uh, not just starting in 2022 when you were listening to the Beatles um, nonstop. <laughs> Um, born in South Carolina, a pastor's son. And I'm going to fast forward through your childhood to a bit because I get to this point when you went to Middle Tennessee State to study recording industry management. That mm. tells me that by that point, you already knew that you wanted a career in music. So yeah. talk to me about the point that you decided, you know, what was the impetus? What was the catalyst that said, my name's Dave Barnes and I'm going to be in music for the rest of my life? Yeah. Y'all are going to love this. I, I was at a friend of mine's house. Like I grew up listening to music. Mom and dad loved music. So I was really fortunate that like they were always playing great music in the house and so much of what dad actually had rubber soul. That's the one record I knew pretty well from growing up. But, um, but like they just, they still do. They just love music. And so I, I really love music, but um, I remember so well sitting in front of my friend's um, stereo. I was probably in like ninth grade. And I mean, y'all going to laugh. It felt like rain man because he had the best of 1978 time life disc. Yeah. And for whatever, we're just hanging out in his room. I don't know what we're doing playing Nintendo and he put it on. And I remember standing, uh, it was something about the loud, how loud it was. And it wasn't, we weren't making ears bleed, but you know, just when you have like a real stereo, it's like, Oh, and then I just remember standing there and hearing like dust in the wind, American woman, more than a feeling by, Bob. it was, some, I remember something changed. Like I stood there and I was like, I feel like my body is on fire. <laughs> like I just <laughs> felt like I've heard music, but it's never made me feel like this. And that was really the beginning of this thing of like, whatever this is, I have to do this. Mm. And so um, I played drums at the time. And so when we moved to Knoxville and then eventually I went to middle Tennessee state. I went to actually play drum kit. I thought I was going to be like a touring session guy. And I was a good drummer. I mean, I wasn't, you know, Neil Pert or Vinny Cauda, but I was a good, I was a good player. And, um, but dude, the minute I started playing guitar, my roommate freshman year had one and he would let me play it when he was at class. And it was like, I just was like, I, I, it's weird too. Cause y'all know this. Like, I think, um, 
you know, a lot of people when they start playing guitar and like you hear John Mayer talk about this, but like, you know, he was like learning blues. He was learning licks. He was like, how is Stevie Ray Vaughan doing this? How, you know, I just wanted to write songs, which had no made zero sense. Like there was no pedigree of that at all anywhere in my family. But for me, it was like, I just feel like I want to, I didn't want to learn anything. I didn't care about that. I was like, I feel like, you know, I just want to write songs. And so I did that through college. And when I graduated, I just started to play out some. And it was like, you know, um, that, which is, I mean, the, the, the idiocy of youth. Like I look back, I had never sang in front of anybody. <laughs> like my best friend, I would sheepishly like, hey, what do you think about this? And he, oh man, that's pretty good. And finally, I just was like, I should probably play out. And I remember he was like, are you serious? I was like, I mean, I feel like that's what you do, right? Like if you're going to be an artist. And he was like, sure. And so I just would get up and play like 40 minute sets. I don't know what was wrong with me, but it was like, that made sense to me. I was like, well, that's what you do, man. And I was like, sure, man. I mean, usually people know I sing, <laughs> but, um, and then from there, you know, it just moved to Nashville, worked for this producer. Um, and he, we made a record together and I just kind of hit the road after that. Hmm. Um, was that Ed? Was that Ed Cash? Yeah. 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 Cause, cause who, his, who, his name is, is... because he, I mean, I look back, I mean, I could cry tears of <laughs> thankfulness because he is, and was a phenomenal producer, not like young buck in town figuring his thing out. Like Ed knew what he was doing and and not just as an artist himself, but as a producer, but I think just really liked me. And he was like, I'm just going to teach you a ton of things. And so mm-hmm. when we made that first record together, he taught me how to sing better and how to, you know, and, and just nuked. So I went in thinking we were going to do a 15 song, EP, you know, or like record, like an acoustic thing. I was like, bro, I got songs for days. <laughs> and he was like, I'll never forget. He's like, okay, three of these are good. And I was oh. like, and 12 are amazing. And he was like, <laughs> we could work with. And I was like, and I had like the show closer. He didn't even want to cut, you know, oh. I was like, but it was, you know, every record we made was just like a, I was, it was so undeserved and such a learning experience. Cause he was, and he's a really good song guy. He's a great songwriter, but you know, that, that craft to me is a missing thing these days where you have guys and girls who really know songs, you know, you can play them songs and okay, I can tell you what's missing or you yeah. got it or. I love everything but that. Go tweak that. And he's one mm-hmm. of those guys. So it was invaluable for me as a songwriter to kind of learn like, oh, like you should work on stuff. You know? <laughs> and I think, yeah. too, I mean, going back to the Beatles, I think one of the things I probably slept on the most learning about them was just George Martin's involvement. I think I just always thought, yeah, he's a genius. He was great. But as they release demos of those songs, it is amazing how different those songs are mm-hmm. from when they wrote them to when he got a hold of them. And that mm-hmm. was really and I felt like Ed was you know, like that for me, just like really seminal and like, okay, you have this little thing, we need to polish it, you know? And then, you know, as they did, you know, the more you do it, the more I've been like, oh, okay, kind of got it. I think I know a little bit more what I'm doing, but yeah. um, Yeah. Um, well you did a, a, another record with Ed chasing Mississippi in, in 2006. And after that in 2008, uh, comes your me and you and the world album. And you, had the song until you on that record, which was a single, but that was kind of a, a reworking of a song from your first uh, independent album from, mm. you know, four years prior. And I'm always interested in songs kind of finding their, their right time and, and their right place. And, you know, you have an artist who maybe writes a song and it's, and it's on a record and maybe it slips through the cracks. You never hear from it again. Talk a little bit about the process of just revisiting that song and going, hey, you know, I want to bring this into it, cast it in, in a new setting. What was it about that song in particular that made you feel like I need to to reincorporate this on, you know, on that project at that time? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you guys remember this, but th- those days were so interesting because you really did have like an indie scene and then you had a signed scene. It yeah. was in, in never the two shall meet. It felt like, you know, me and a bunch of my buddies who were making our own records, paying for them, doing the whole thing, touring on our own budgets and everything. And then I had my friends who were signed who were like the label was paying for the record. The label was paying for their touring. And there were huge bonuses to each and, and you know, hard things to each. But for me, you know, what what I would see a lot of my friends do is you do your first couple of indie albums and you got signed. And there was kind of this understood like, hey, that song hasn't gotten a shot because you were still indie. And and unlike today where every song can be listened to anybody mm. at any time, you know, pe- people only knew your music if they had the record. Yeah. And so I think we just felt like, man, that that's always been kind of the slam dunk mm. song. And I think for a long time and still people... Uh, well, really, before God gave me you, but you know that was the song for me forever, and it was the one that got sync placements, and you know people would cover it live, and 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 uh, a country artist covered it, and it was going to be a single for him really early days for me, and so, I, you know, that was back then when people were like, hey, let's take a couple of those songs that we know are worthy of hearing again, and let's recut them. So, mm-hmm. and that song, it was so funny. This was such a hysterical moment for me because when I'd start doing records with it, I just didn't know how to sing. Yeah, I don't even know that I do now, but. I remember like really fighting him up because we just kept all the same tracks. He added a couple things. We had a guy named Mark Endert mix it, who's a huge mixing guy and was at the time. But I was like, Ed, I don't want to re-sing it. He was like, this is a waste of time. Because he had gotten a great vocal. It just taken a while. But I remember like my pride was like, mm. I need to re-sing this. You know, and he's like, fine. <laughs> I remember literally he he humored me for like 20 minutes. Like, because, you know, I'd sung it a thousand times. So I'm flying through it. And he's like, just before we finish, can I just do something for you? I was like, yeah. He's like, okay, this is your new take. And I was like, sounds great. He's like, here's your old take. <laughs> he sounded exactly the same <laughs> because he was like, hey, I know what I'm doing and I got a great vocal from that one. We don't need to do this all over. Right, right, right. But I think, you know, a lot of it was just feeling like, man, let's let's give those songs that haven't seen, you know, yeah, a chance uh, to, to sort of be out there. That's interesting. And even though it's literally the most obvious thing in the world, just you're saying that I'm kind of going, oh, yeah, that the, that's reminding me <laughs> that like how, how it was, <laughs> how different the world yeah. was, because I just think now like. Well, yeah, somebody would just go on Spotify and listen to your early indie. Oh. Like, if whatever point they discovered you, they'd go back and listen to everything. That right. just wasn't an option at the time. I you mean, know what's it was, so scary, know. too, is you don't, you know, it, it was this beautiful kind of like, um, it was a minor league. You know what I mean? It's like you got to sort of figure out how to do what you were doing. Um, and I think only because of Ed, I'd never, I've really never put out a song that I like hate. Now, there's some that I'm, I'm like, oh, I, I could have done something with that. But which one? That's when I suddenly turned into the librarian on the connection. (laughs) But, um, but you know, I have friends who hate some of their records, like can't stand how, why did we record that song? But that was all indie days where it's like you and your bros, or you know, like the local guy who produces, you know, like everybody knew like the one guy who had a studio in the city they lived in. And so, you know, you could kind of you could kind of gestate on your own. You kind of butterfly, you know, 
and then by the time the world was ready for you, you were kind of like, all right, I got some good songs and I, we, I got signed and I got this great producer. But, you know, now it's I feel terrible for these young bucks because it's like your bad songs are out there for everybody. <laughs> here, <you know? laughs> and we could kind of forever a little bit. Right. You know, you, you talk about um, that, the pros and cons of being indie versus being signed in those days. And I always think one of the pros of being an indie band is your proximity to your audience. Um, yeah. you have real communication with them at shows or probably email lists or whatever was going, you know, you probably had a forum on the website in, in 2008, 2009. Um, and you, you begin to understand what it is they want. Sometimes with the, with the signed, uh, category artists, there's a distance from the audience and you're sort of writing for some imaginary focus group. Um, and you, you talked about this idea of putting together albums that kind of have a purpose and a shape, um, and I think You, The Night, and Candlelight is the first Valentine's Day project that I've been familiar with. And then I look a few years later and you did another one. Uh, you've done multiple Christmas albums. I feel like you know very much what your listeners like. And, and you understand that they're, they're willing to go on the ride with you from one Valentine's Day project to another. Um, talk a little bit about that, about your understanding of your listeners and, and that yeah. relationship and how it informs the way you make projects. Well, it's that's really kind. I wish that I could say that was. I mean, we we did know we were doing like a Valentine's Day project, and you know we knew that. I I um, I wish I could say like, dude, I just had the finger on the pulse, of my <laughs> you know. But but you know, I mean, it, I will say this, and that's a great question, I, Paul. I think one of the great things about being indie for the amount of time that I was is that I really knew my fans. Like, you know, I, I would stay for hours after shows, hang out. I mean. That was one of the things I'm a pretty extreme extrovert. And so I loved that. Like, I, I mean, until it got to where it was just too hard to do, I really enjoyed that sincerely. Mm -hmm. And so I think the thing that was great was you really are getting immediate interaction and information because yeah. you get done with the show and you'd play a new song and people be like, it was cool. And you're like, oh, okay. And then some be like, oh my gosh, tell me when you're recording that. And so I think the data just, you know, yeah. you get from that is so valuable um, and so that was really helpful. And I think too, you know, whether you like it or not, I think most artists know pretty quickly kind of the songs and the sort of vibes that people sort of come to them for, you know, right. like, and I knew, you know, day one, that ballads were always going to be a really significant thing in my career. And so it kind of, I think with both those kind of Valentine's project, the other one's called hymns for her. It just kind of, I just kind of knew like, you know, this is, and I, I mean, yeah, yeah they're they ready. And, and honestly, if you put me on a desert Island with a guitar, for a year, I'd probably write, you know, 98 ballads and two mids and, and you know, and I'd, I would have started an up tempo that I didn't finish. And so um, you're waiting for the co-writers on that one. Yeah. <laughs> sure. yeah. yeah. I'm waiting for Paul to get shipwrecked with me and then we can be the next John Paul. Um, but, you know, I, it, it does. I think that's something that, that, that really I lament from those days. It's like, you just got such great interaction and, you know, people would say you get that now with social media, but it's just a different thing. You know, yeah. it's like, people are a little more kind back then because they were saying it to your face. It wasn't quite, you know. Right, uh, right. You know. Yeah, I mean, there's there's something that, that we talk about on here a good bit, which is the idea of kind of getting that, um, you're almost doing market research when you're a live musician and, and you're out there and you're on the road and you can try out new things and you maybe even tweak them based on how people react. And that's something that, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, if you're not a touring artist, if you're not performing live, then you, you miss out on a little bit of that honing aspect and, and that feedback. Another way that you get that is if 
another artist picks up on one of your songs and records it and you realize, oh, wow, this is reaching a whole different audience that maybe wasn't my audience, uh, you know, to begin with. And that is certainly true of God Gave Me You, which is a song that you wrote and recorded uh, as an artist first. And then Blake Shelton made it a number one country song. And Mm -hmm. to my knowledge, you weren't really operating in the country world before then. Talk a bit about how he found out about that song, how that process unfolded, and then how that impacted you as a songwriter going forward in terms of thinking about potential additional audiences. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, that uh, that song was, was I released myself, we released it. The whole story is crazy, uh, and it actually, believe it or not, started with this prayer because I was at this weird season of my career where I was just like, what am I doing? Which I get there a lot. I'm such an artist that way. Like, you know, five days after release, I'm like, that's it. Nobody cares. It's over. <laughs> it's all over. And my wife, who's just so different than me, is always like, stop, please get up. You're great. You know, you're good. People <laughs> like it. Let's move on. And we had, we had had this long walk one night. I'd been on tour a bunch. And I was worn out. And and she had just been really encouraging. And and so I was just like, Lord, I just love, I just love a win. And it's such a selfish prayer, but I was just like, I just, it would be awesome. You know? And so I recorded that song and then we had somebody come to us this guy that did christian radio and i'd never done christian radio ever and i'd actually been really scared of it um because it kind of felt a little bit like quicksand you know it was kind of like you put one toe in and all of a sudden it's really hard to get out of um and so i I just remember this is like one of the greatest moments of maturity for me i remember like again i'd prayed this thing like god just let this happen and so my manager calls like, dude, I just got the most random call from this really big Christian pr- radio promoter. And he thinks God gave me you like a big hit in Christian radio. And I was like, like means a lot, but like, you know, and I'd worked with this guy my whole career, my manager. And I was like, dude, you know how I feel about this? Like, I don't want to do it. And he was like, well, I just, you know, it just, it's a big opportunity. So let's really think about it. And so I remember so succinctly hanging up the phone and it was like, I don't know what God's voice was like in my head. It's kind of like a nice Darth Vader. But he was like, uh, he was like a benevolent. It's like the new. I don't know if y'all watch the Ahsoka series, but I was like, oh, it's like sweet Darth Vader. But um, it's like the reformed Anakin. But it's like Barth Vader. I just remember. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just remember feeling like God had said, "Look, man, you can't pray for something and then qualify the answer. Mm. Like you, that's just not how this works." And so I remember calling, being like, "All right, dude, let's go for it." And it was just the greatest experience. Like I, I. it was a big hit on Christian radio. I went and did a bunch of radio stuff. It was so fun and went to the award shows as a whole thing. God gave me you for the ups and downs. God gave me you for the days of doubt. For when I think I've lost my way, there are no words left to say it's true. Then um, that's how Blake heard it, which was such a funny. I just felt like God had such a great sense of humor in that thing yeah. because I was kind of like, "Man, you answered the prayer," and he's like, "Buckle up, son, <laughs> you know, it's just <laughs> beginning." And so that's ironically how Blake heard it was on Christian radio. He was driving home one night, loved it, and then I had a friend that worked at Warner Brothers who worked with him, and she called and said, "Hey, I think it's going to be in his wedding." And then it went from wedding. And I think he's recording it, and then and then it was a single. And so the thing that was really fun about that season, which was just unbelievably affirming, was. You know, I think I'd always felt like, yeah, I'll write these songs and it's cool. And I've got my little thing that I do and the people that like it, love it. And it's so cool. But like, I don't know if I can do that. Like, 
the big songs. Like, I don't know if that's my thing. And I didn't really want to do it candidly. I didn't feel like that was what that, you know, I, I like what I do. And then all of a sudden you have this song that does that. And I mean, and it was, a you know, I think he still closes his shows with it. It's 12 years later or whatever. Wow. And it was like, at the time it felt like, wow, okay, well that is very unexpected. And then, you know, you begin that dilemma of kind of like, well, what does this mean for all the other songs I write? And have there been ones that could have been that before? And can I do it now moving forward? And so, um, and so, you know, from then started to write more songs for, I mean, to your, you know, to your question, it was like, I really wanted to get off the road. I was traveling a lot. And so I was like, maybe if I wrote songs for other people, that could be another way to kind of have a stream of income without me being gone as much. And so, and you know, now I, that's a, that's a part of my career is writing songs for other people. And it's so much fun. And, and especially knowing that's kind of why I began in the first place. And, uh, but it's such a different thing than writing my own stuff. It's, it's really fun to have a foot in both because, you know, you can do a Beatles project on your own. Right. You only sit in a lot of rooms with other people who are trying to write songs for themselves. And you're like, have you listened to, <laughs> you know, what about uh, everybody, you know, but do you know the monkey song? Are you familiar with the Beatles monkey song? Have you thought about something like that? You know, <laughs> just staring at you, you know, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know? um, so, it, you know, it, but it's, it's, it was a huge, it was a huge gift. And and I think really affirmed some things that I didn't, I didn't even know that I was suspicious of, you know, like, can I do a song that really has mass appeal? Can I, you know, um, have something that, and it's still, man, I'm telling you, the goosebumps I get, like every now and then I've been able to see him play it live. And it's, you just see all these people singing it and there's nothing that is more like of a, con like, it just, it boggles my mind. Like, I'm like, holy cow, this is a thing in the world we live in. It's like, you can write this because you know, I wrote it by myself. And it's like, I was about to say, the fact that you wrote it solo, I think makes it even more, you know, because yeah. sometimes when you write something in a, in a co, I mean, you've had, you've had other big hits and, and a lot of them have been co-writes, you know, I, I'm thinking about um, Craving You. Um, mm -hmm. Thomas Rhett and Maren Morris. I mean, that was a, yeah. a huge hit that you wrote with uh, Julian Bonetta. Carrie Underwood put out a song called Kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, that yeah. was uh, a co-write you were a part of. I mean, those are amazing as well. Mm -hmm. But there's something about, okay, we kind of set out to do this. Like we, yeah. we were writing a song, yeah. Yeah. hoping to push that boat out into the water. And then you have this, and that's an amazing feeling too. And you can high five yeah, someone yeah. and you share that, you know, the two of you have that to share for the rest mm -hmm. of your life. But mm -hmm. also when you wrote something by yourself, without ever dreaming of those type of, I mean, that, that has to, to be a, a kind of a head trip that never goes away. Yeah. It, it, that's the best way you could say it. I mean, it's still, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's like, it really is. It's like magic. It's like, you know, something that you sit in a room and do by yourself, you, you go and hear thousands of people singing at the top of their lungs and they don't know that I'm in the crowd just like, Right, you know, like it's the weirdest existence because you're like somebody behind you is like sit down. You're like, yeah, no, <laughs> my you sit down. I can't help my soul is standing up. Um, so yeah, it's it's really it's really 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 cool. It's a, it's an amazing. It's it's something I never thought I'd be able to do, and, and still I'm like, it never gets old. Genuinely, like yeah. I got caught the other day. I was at a stop. I was at a stop sign. One of my friends was running by, and the radio was playing, and I had it juiced, and he was like. Really, I was like, "Can a man not just enjoy himself?" <laughs> That's the worst part. Can a guy just enjoy himself? Um, well, let's let's. Paul mentioned uh, "Kingdom" that Carrie Underwood recorded, but that's a, a song that um, you wrote with Carrie and Krista Stefano. It's two kids flying down the hall in the morning into our bedroom. It's a creaky board on the front porch. You swear you're gonna fix it soon 
It's a kitchen table where we say our prayers Give a little thanks to the men upstairs It's the feeling I get, baby, when I look at you It ain't always pretty as a picture at a song like Craving You where it's two songwriters who have written a song for an artist. But now with Kingdom, you are a songwriting artist who is writing for another artist, but that other artist is in the room, um, which I think would have to be a completely different kind of calibration, um, you know, because even if you're writing with someone specific in mind, it's a whole different animal to have that person in the room, especially when you are your, yourself an artist and you have to sort of like check yourself and go like, okay, I'm, I'm here to serve this artist. Not, mm-hmm. you know, just talk about that dynamic of, yeah. of how writing rooms can be very different kind of environments, depending on who's in the room, what you're writing yeah. for, you know, uh, uh, to speak a bit about that if you could. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you first, I mean, writing with Carrie, we wrote four or five songs for that project. And I mean, th- there is the writer in me. So the songwriter in me, I wrote with a band who I've come to love and are dear friends by now, but um, Warren Treaty, it, you know, you get in the room with some of these people who can like sing, like all caps sing. And it is, there's really nothing like it. Like mm-hmm. when you're kind of like, all right, this is a melody we all kind of worked out. And here's a verse, let's sing through it. And then they sing it right there. <laughs> it is like, I mean, you're go- it's like goosebumps for a couple of minutes. Like you kind of have to come down off these highs because yeah. you're like, and especially with her, because she's just a monster singer. I mean, like it's hard to understand when you're in the room with her. It's like, it's like your brain is kind of trying to, because you feel like you're listening to a record and then she's just right there staring at yeah. you kind of going, is this melody right? And you're like, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> um so those days are especially really, really sweet because, you you know, you, you, but it's tricky to your point. I mean, that, that's something, honestly, you know, 10 years into doing it professionally, if I can put it in air quotes, I still, it's still really hard because I think the, the, the plight of a artist writer is a, we, it's a weird hustle. It's like, because my friends who aren't artists, you know, you're a writer. So you're like, what do you want to write today? And the artist goes, this is it. And you're like, great. You know, you're there to, you're there. It's a service industry, you know? And I think with me, it's hard because so much of the stuff that gets you in the room can get you in trouble in the room sometimes, you yeah. know, because it's like they're like, I love your stuff. Come and let's write together. And then you get in there and then they're like, either they don't like the ideas you have or you realize like it's not going to make any sense what I'm going to pitch today because that's not what you do. Mm. And so then you have to. And so I think with every year I do it, I get a little better at like, you know, realizing I'm just here to serve. And like and then every now and then if I'm bold enough, kind of going like, OK. Can I tell you what I think would be cool here? And it may not work, but this is where my brain wants to go. And sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, let's do it. And other times it doesn't make sense, but it's a weird hustle. It's like, I had a really long conversation with another friend of mine who's in the Nashville writing community and he's an artist and a pro writer too. And it was, it's just weird. And it's hard. It's like, it's hard to explain to some people. Cause I think they're like, why isn't it just like my buddy who's a, just a writer. And it's like, yeah, but it's, it's just, it's the hats, the changing yeah. of hats gets really tricky sometimes, you know, yeah. because you, 
you get really stoked and you're like, all of my spider senses are tingling. And they're like, that's great. But I don't love the chorus. And like, I don't think you're listening to me. All of my <laughs> spider like, what makes me unique? And I think what you like about me is telling me we should write this chorus. And they're like, yeah. yeah. And you're like, oh. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> Writer friends are better just going, okay, then let's all write it. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. What you said about Carrie reminded me about a question that that Paul asked um, when we had Steve Perry on the show. And that was, <laughs> which I applaud you for having the guts to ask this, but Paul was basically like, man, you're such a good singer. Yeah. Like, how do you know that maybe the line's not great because everything sounds great Like yeah. when, you, when you say it? And, you know, maybe uh, Michael and Tanya... Trotter from War and Peace might be the same situation, but yeah. if you're in a room with somebody and their voices like Carrie's are just so unbelievable that it sort of blows you to the floor. To are what, there any crappy melodies? <laughs> yeah. To what degree do you have to kind of be like, okay, is this really as good as I think it is? Or no. is it just like they could sing the phone book and it would sound amazing. Yeah. And, and is there a bit of a relational dance to that to be like, I can't tell you how unbelievable that sounds, but I think we could beat it. <laughs> but you know, you know, it's so funny. It's great having people like me in the room because then I sing it and they're like, I don't like it as much. As I <laughs> but I'm glad that moved us along. You know, it's a weird you do. And, and honestly, that's what's great about having writers in the room. And they'll do that. Like the smart ones will take a melody from someone like that and go, OK, hey, let me sing it. And, and they just kind of know like, oh, if I can sing it and I'm not really a singer. You know, so there's these kind of little tricks you have to learn because it's and then sometimes it's like, I don't even know if that melody is good or not. I just know when you sing it, if you're going to record it anyway, it sounds awesome. So right, let's move yeah. on. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, talking about all the hats you wear, I'm going to I'm going to take you back to artist hat a little bit. Um, You know, the Stories to Tell album was an album that you recorded in L.A. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I understand that change of venue was important to, to the yeah. making of that record and how it sounded. But I, I want to use that as a springboard to fast forward to the Carry On San Vicente album, which basically is L.A. I don't know yeah. where you recorded it, but it, yeah. I mean, it. Scott and I talk sometimes about the Eagles and we'll talk about, you know, the, the peyote Eagles and then the cocaine Eagles. And there's, <laughs> there's somehow you found the moment like where, where oh, it switched from peyote to cocaine that is that's what this record is to me new kid in town eagles oh my gosh like oh my gosh um and you know uh a song like glow like the moon which i understand there's kind of a story to the way that song came together and i, I read about the, the the concept that you sort of envisioned it as this stripped down type of song and and that the musicians had other ideas and oh, when I man. went to listen to it after reading that, I was like, oh, yeah, there's a whole Seven Bridges Road thing going on mm -hmm. here. And then it evolves into this, this bigger thing. She, she ain't a liar. She never means no Just like a fire, Lord, it keeps you warm. You'll be laughing when she's smiling, broken when she don't, begging for kisses, dying when she won't. Waiting on our love, you never come too soon. She may say goodbye, but Lord, her I know 
most artists don't like it when you go, man, I hear this and that. This sounds like Jackson Brown or this sounds like. Yeah, but yeah. my understanding is that's what you were going for on this record. So yeah, I'm just yeah, going to tell absolutely. you, you did it, man. And everything nice. that you heard on that 1978 Time Life recording, and you said, I want to do that. You well, did it. In 2016, you did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Thanks. That was a funny record, too, because it, it, it was. I recorded, I wrote that record and demoed it. So it was the first time I'd ever done that where I like demoed it to the nines. It was like every part I really played and, and, and put out. And so when I gave the guys who I, I mean, you won't find many people that respect session players more than I do. I mean, I have such a huge love and respect for what they do. So when I go to them and I ask things of them, I always feel weird because I'm kind of like, I know you're a genius and I'm not telling you try how to do your job, but this is what I need. And what I found, because all the guys I use on there are monster session guys who thankfully are friends of mine, but they all said, Dave, you don't understand the joy it brings us that we can just play what you gave us. And I thought what, and, and one of them said something that I, I think about so much, buddy, my Derek Wells said, Dave, you're a songwriter, which means you make melodies for a living. And he said, mm. sometimes I can do that. I'm a guitar player, but a lot of times I'm going to play the guitar parts that need the song. I'm not a professional mel melody guy necessarily. And that was really helpful for me. So, but that record was funny because I sort of sheepishly sent it to the guys and was like, hey, if it's on there, that's kind of the part I want you to play. Just play it better than I do. Mm. Um, and they just knocked it out of the, I mean, it, it was in how I, you know, I cast that record like that. So I had the rhythm section. But then I wanted a Joe Walsh and I wanted a, you know, uh, a Glenn uh, or uh, Don Felder. I wanted like mm. really different players that, yeah. that did never play at the same time. And so it was so fun working on that record because it was like, OK. And I told him and I cast him that way. You know, I was like, Derek, you're kind of more Don. You're you're buckled in. You're going to do the the you got the thing on lock. Chris Donigan is much more sporadic and kind of all over the place he plays slide and so it was fun with both of them because i go okay you do this you do this and, and it and and it's one of the records i mean this is a hot take but it's it's one of my records that i still listen to a lot like mm. i'll find myself that and chasing mississippi for whatever reasons i still like listen to like i'll find myself just like putting them on while i'm driving and going oh man this really still holds up yeah. um yeah. and i think some of it is because the guy's you know, it, it, I think when you have a band that really gets what you're trying to do, it's so fun because then they really go, oh, that, you know, we want to do that. Like, yeah, that's that's, you know, we did this yesterday. Now we could do this today. You know, it's yeah. not like yeah. another demo and you're OK, let's run charting it out. You know, it's like, you know, so it was fun. It was really fun. Well, in addition to maybe being the the busiest songwriter that I've ever heard of. You also host two podcasts, Dave's Five Hot Takes and Dadville, which uh, are both funny and you're a funny guy. You've made us laugh today. You're also doing like a, a stand-up comedy stuff. Like talk about those disciplines. Number one, how you even find the time and yeah. and how you, they all kind of feed one another. As a creative person, yeah. you know, the the ideas that you come up with to show up in songs and the things that feel like there's something to, to, to make jokes about or the things that you want to talk about on the podcast. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're fun. I think, you know, I, I imagine you guys are like this too, as creatives. Like, I, I think that is one of the best thing that's things that have come from the last decade of the music industry getting kind of reworked, which I'd still grieve. But I think one of the good things about it is, you know, you're no longer just Paul Simon, you know, you're, you're no longer like just Billy Joel. You're, you know, you have a podcast, you have like, you maybe paint or, you know, like, you do instrumental music too. It's like, it's, I think it's turned us all into slashers. As my friend used to say, it's like mm. singer slash songwriter slash podcaster slash comedian, whatever. Yeah. And so the thing, so part of that kind of bums me out. It's like, man, it'd be great to just do music and not, but I think honestly, it's even better because 
you know, like I don't know anybody who's just good at music. You mm. know what I mean? Like they tend to be really creative and paint or they write poems or they're killer guitar player aside from their singing. You know, it's like, and so I think the good thing about where the industry is, it's just kind of forced a lot of us to do, um, you know, other creative endeavors. And I, and, it, and I do think it's really good for us all. I think it, yeah. you know, and for me, I can only speak for myself, but it just keeps me from being too like creatively constipated. It's just nice to kind of have, <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm, I'm always creating in some way and sort of interacting in creative ways. And so, it's it's kept it from being too and then it makes music so much more fun you know because you can go back to it and then write a record and feel all that again and then you know do something and do the podcast in the meantime to get me off music then i go back to me you know it's not yeah i sometimes grieve for as much as i envy their careers because they could just do their thing i also sort of think i bet that had to get old after a while you know what i mean it's Mm -hmm. like you're just doing album after album after album you know yeah Uh, and so now i think it's cool because you know you, you see a lot of the artists nowadays have like numerous little things they do and uh because i think they can you know it's like again i don't know anybody's just good at music like you right. know yeah. we're all creatives and that's the way it's it's uh iterated i want to drill down on the stand-up comedy for a second oh yeah, um, yeah so i was in nashville last month and i went to this interview thing where uh it was nickel creek and sarah silverman both oh being my gosh. both being interviewed um and uh, Julie Height was interviewing both, but then they all like Nickel Creek and Sarah Silverman kind of wound up interviewing each other. It was really interesting. And wow. the main reason I went, cause I was like, I'm a huge fan of Sarah Silverman and Nickel Creek, but this mm-hmm. is bonkers to think about like this in yeah. the same, you know, breath. And so I went just out of kind of out of curiosity and the conversation that they had about the similarities between constructing comedy and, and constructing music was fascinating, but also, like Nickel Creek are musicians, and Sarah Silverman is a, a, a comedian, and you, you kind of occupy, you know, you've done both things, and and we had a comedian named Dusty Slay on this mm-hmm. show, which was like kind of weird because it's a show about songwriters, but I just think he's an interesting dude, and I oh, want to yeah. try to find oh, an excuse yeah. to have him on. Um, yeah. And he talks a lot about music, like in his act and stuff. So I thought it would be interesting to talk talk about songwriting with a guy. Yeah. But again, he's not a songwriter. He's never written a song. He's just a music fan. Now I've got a guy here. I've got a captive audience. Somebody who has done comedy and mm. songwriting and performing. Do you see connections uh, between those disciplines, or or is it fairly siloed for you, where you consider it just kind of a different animal? You know that man. These are great. That's why I love this podcast. These are such good questions. Um, it it's similar in that I think you're always gathering. You know what I mean? You're kind of always so with 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 stand up. It's like bits. Obviously, it's like you see something funny or you see something you think is weird and you want to talk about it. Music. It's more like oh, a great title or you know you hear a song and you're like, man, it'd be cool to do a vibe like that. Um, I think in a lot of ways they're really different. That that was something that was really interesting to me when I started doing stand up shows was. You know, I always say, like we had on Dadville, we actually had um, uh, Bargazzi, we had Nate on, and we were we were laughing about this. Like the difference between Seinfeld when you watch Comedian that that movie, which is just, I mean, I think any creative kind of needs to watch that movie. Um, you know, he could get up and do two minutes and bomb. Like uh, it does. There's nothing redemptive about not being funny, even as a celebrity. It's just not funny, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It, it sadly that's just the way it is. Sting 
could have done the same thing at a coffee shop, you know, because he, he, you know, it shows in that movie Seinfeld would go to Caroline's and kind of go, "Hey, can I get five minutes?" And of course, everybody's like, "Y'all want to hear Seinfeld do some new material?" <laughs> Sting popped up at like, you know, the Bowery Ballroom or whatever, and was like, "Hey, the band is done, but we have Sting in the house. He's got his guitar. He wants to play a couple new songs." It can be the worst songs you've ever heard, but his voice is still awesome. <laughs> the guitar playing is probably going to be pretty cool, and it's Sting. So yeah. it's still redemptive. Like you're still leaving going, you're not talking about how bad the songs were. You're just talking about, holy crap, that was stink. And so that's a really different thing because you realize on stage, you have to be funny. You just have yeah. to be funny. Like there's yeah. no, you, know, you can have a bad singing night and songs sounded good and the band was great. Or you can have a night where you sang well, but you've got some lyrics, but like still the vibe was good. You know, and there's no net in comedy. It's just, you're just free falling. And so- yeah. It was an interesting thing as I got up and kind of learned that real time. She's like, man, you know, I, I would realize I didn't know where I was ending the joke. You know, it'd be like mm. I had some story and I'm like, oh, shoot, there's no ripcord here. And everybody's just like staring at you. <laughs> and, I, and I think, too, with I think one way they're also similar in performance is like people are really looking at you for you to tell them how to feel. You know what I mean? Like, because if you're uncomfortable, they're uncomfortable. If you're mm -hmm. having a great time, they're having a great time. And I think never as much as you are in comedy because you have to just exude so much confidence that people like I did this cruise. Um, there's a, there's a group called uh YouTube group called dude perfect. And they did this cruise and they invited me to do music and comedy. So like, Hey, do a set for the, for the cruise people that's music and then do a comedy set. And I walked out and, you know, I'd run the set. I, I, cause I have to re-memorize all this stuff. And, um, I ran the set. It was like good time. And so right as I'm about to go out, the guy's like, Hey man, their set is going long. So, you know, the guy, people are going to kind of stream in probably for the next five minutes. And I mean, finding that out with music is whatever, but comedy, it's like, oh shoot, should I move some jokes around? And so for five minutes, we're kind of scrambling. And I just had to walk out and go, I own the stage. It doesn't matter if there's 25 people. And then sure enough, at like five minutes, all these people started coming in. And so those things as a, as a comic are weird. Cause you're like, everybody knows what's happening. You can't play over it. You know, like you hear people kind of, moving their chairs and sitting down. <laughs> and if you have any callbacks yeah. later in the set to a yeah, joke that you made earlier. And, and that's the other thing too. And so that, that, you know, but you just, I just had to go out and go, no, like this is, I'm acting like there's 5,000 people out there having a great time. And those disciplines are really different with music. Cause you can, you know, you've always got music to fall back on a joke bombs. You just play the song, it, whatever you play the song. And so I think for me, um, it's much more exhilarating comedy is like you're up there and it's like being strapped to like a, nitrous you know you're just like here we yeah. go but man when it doesn't work it is like terrifying where with music it's much more in the middle there's not as much of a curve but i don't know that you get quite the high you do when something is really funny yeah. and it works you know yeah. Well, yeah. um so it's it's a really different thing i, I bargatsky and i talked about this too but like i ended i did a tour where it was half songs and half comedy and um and i ended it at the ryman and even going from like a 400 person club comedy, because you know, laugh, 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 done. You're on to your next joke. Rhyming, laugh, 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 laugh. <laughs> and even just you, like, you have to go, what am I going to physically do right now? Because you're like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> what do I do with my hands? <laughs> like, literally, literally. Like, and so I, I just kind of was like, oh God, I got to figure. And then it's like, you got to cut jokes because, you know, so it's just so much stuff that's like, real-time processing which is yeah. really fun but but really challenging you know we probably want to leave this with talking about you as a songwriter rather than you as a comedian since this is songcraft yeah. and just as 
certain jokes really land or mm. don't land. Um, you know, as a songwriter, there are certain songs that land, <laughs> you know, that, that really are effective. And I want to ask you about the song, uh, we're going to miss these days, um, mm. from your previous album notes from Paris. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, uh, one of those, uh, I'm not crying. You're crying, uh, yeah. kind of songs. See the more odds keep growing. gonna miss nights we don't sleep cause she's scared of the shadows every day everything just goes wrong but the hard times aren't as hard no they seem to get sweeter when someday I actually, as a dad, I, I have two daughters, and I won't listen to songs about fatherhood anymore because I, I, I'm done now. Like I, I, <laughs> yeah, when I heard yeah, that yeah, one, yeah, it's, dad's in it, a puddle. It, yeah. it gets it, and and yeah. I'll just be like, I'll just go back and listen to Dave Barnes. I mean, that's uh, you, you, you nailed it with that song. Yeah, so thanks. there's a question in there somewhere, probably. But yeah, yeah. Talk well, a bit I'll about tell that. you that the thing that I've found to your point about songs that work and don't. Um, so in my studio right here, there's a backyard right to my right. And it's right there. It's just on the other side of the windows right there. And there was a season when my kids were really little and I'd be writing. And my piano used to face that way, uh, my key, my keyboard. And I would find myself like, I, it was when I was writing more of these kind of kid songs. And, um, and man, that was one of them. And it just wrecked me. Like I had to stop writing it because they were literally playing. It's It felt like a Hallmark video or something. Like they're playing, they're wrestling on the ground and they look in and wave. And I'm in there writing the song. And I'm just a puddle, you know? And I th mm. so I think, you know, and you guys know this, but like, I, I, I have to keep going back to the music doesn't matter to other people unless it matters to me first, mm. you know, like it has to move me. And then that's, that's as much as I've got. Like if, if anybody ever says, how do you know a song is good? I don't know, but I know that if I feel something, then that's the best that I got, you know, that's all that I can mm. offer anybody to listen. And especially with songs like that that is the litmus paper test it's like okay is this is this gonna end me there's a song on um my newest christmas ep and it's from the perspective it's kind of like joseph to to jesus kind of thing and i i cried in the vocal and i sent the thing to get mixed and i was like here's another one i cried it's kind of weird and the guy was like bro we're only using that well but it, wow. it was like oh it's kind of weird he's like no man like this is you know it just wrecked me because you're just thinking of your kid the whole time you know yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like Michael Jackson at the end of uh, She's Out of My Life. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly like that. <laughs> That's your moment, Dave. <laughs> um, Dave, thank you so much. Uh, yes, Other Brain Wealth guys. Motel is the new album that emerged after your one year of uh, full yeah. Beatles, so we want to encourage everybody to go. Start there, yeah, but there's yeah. a lot more to... Uh, to dig into and um it's great to uh just talk with you a little bit and hear about Absolutely. your creative process and some of the stories behind your songs and we appreciate you being with us yeah thank you guys it means a lot thanks for listening to make sure you don't miss an episode of songcraft 
please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com. 